We're back in Luke. Uh, the birth narrative uh, that uh, the Gospel writer Luke gives us on uh, the coming of Jesus. And uh, this is our third week uh, in, in Luke uh, looking at the coming of Christ. Uh, the first week that we looked at, we looked at the angel coming to uh, Mary, and it was a huge surprise. It was a huge surprise because uh, Mary was a 12 to 14 year old girl who was poor, who lived on the backside of nowhere, and on top of all that, she was a virgin. And she was going to be the mother of God. It was a shock. And so she was fearful. She was uncertain. Uh, She had her doubts about whether this could really happen or not. But even in the midst of all that, she submitted to God's plan for her life. And after she submitted to God's plan of her life, she took off and she had to go tell somebody what had happened. And so she went and told Elizabeth, and Elizabeth already knew. Elizabeth knew what was going to happen uh, to Mary, and she blessed her with this wonderful blessing that we looked at uh, last week. And so, really, tonight, as we see Mary respond uh, to all that she's experienced uh, and what we've seen the last two weeks from verses 25 uh, through 46. That's where we're at this evening. Let me pray, and we'll get started. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you for the variety of your word. Thank you. Um, Uh, how your word teaches us uh, to center our lives on the person and work of Jesus, that the whole work of the Bible is just dripping with this person uh, who we so desire and who we so need. Oh, Lord, help us to see you in this text. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, So tonight, what we see in verses 46 through uh, 46, 56, is uh, really different than what we looked at the first two weeks. What we looked at the first two weeks is really historical narrative, and what we look at this week is really a song. It's kind of poetry. Well, one of the questions that I get asked uh, most uh, by people who are outside the church is, is this question. They ask me, do you really take the Bible literally? Do you take the Bible literally? And I... I know what they mean. I, what they really are asking is, do you think it's all true? And I respond something like, I, I take the Bible literally where it, has, where it was taken literally by its original hearers. See, if you were to hear something else, something uh, like apocalyptic literature, and that's some of the Bible. That's what you see in the second half of Daniel. Uh, that's what you see in uh, Revelation. That's apocalyptic. You're not supposed to take it literally. It's, it's a vision of what is to come. Wisdom literature is another kind of literature that you see in the Bible. You see it in Song of Solomon. You see it. Uh, it you see it with uh, the Proverbs. You see. Another, you see other. There's historical narrative all over the place from Genesis, First, Second Samuel, uh, Ruth, and then you got the Book of Acts that we've been in lately. And then you've got tons of songs. There are songs uh, that we like. We read earlier in First Samuel chapter two. But then there's a whole book of songs in the Psalms. There's 150 songs in the Psalms. And then you see this song here. But when you see something like apocalyptic literature, you see something like poetry, they're not seeking to have you see it literally. What the writers are seeking for you to do as the hearer is for you to kick in your imagination. They're, they're using things like these, these huge visions and these metaphors to give meaning, whereas with historical narrative, it's really different. With historical narrative, what they're doing is looking back on past events. They're surrounding those events with details in order to give it meaning. So when you get these various genres of the Bible, you probably have a propensity to like one over the other. 
For me, I love historical narrative. It's really hard for me to connect with things like uh, apocalyptic literature. Revelation scares the tar out of me. I, I, I get in the Psalms and sometimes they connect and sometimes they don't. But when I get in story, my, it, it always takes me to a different level. That doesn't mean it's more important. It just means that's what I like more. But the, the challenge with the Bible is that it requires us to engage our whole selves. It requires you to use your imagination when you've got poetry. It requires you to have a longing for justice when you get to Revelation, the apocalyptic literature. It requires you to use your behavior when you see the law in the book of Leviticus or parts of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus. And it always requires your intellect. So it's a real gift, you see, for God to communicate with us in all these different forms. It really shows his creativity. It shows the broadness of his character. It shows his desire to keep us on our toes. And so today we're going to look at a song. And it's beautiful. Many times it's called the Magnificat by Mary that she sings as a response. So let's read it together and look at it. Luke chapter 1, verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and as holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He's scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich. He has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. The word of the Lord. So I got three points like a good preacher uh, tonight. Uh, verses 46 and 47, uh, what is song? Verses 48 to 50, why do we sing? And verses 51 through 56, who do we sing with? What, why, who? What, why, who? So the first one, what, verses 46 and 47, what is song? See, I want you to picture what's going on here. Mary is singing this song, but we don't know exactly the context for it. Would, did she just break out in front of Elizabeth into a song kind of like Hugh Jackman? Just her, just her, her singing at the top of her lungs, just her to Elizabeth with his leaping John the Baptist in her, in her, in her belly. Zechariah and his muteness and his deafness have no idea what's going on in the background. Is that what's going on? Is this in her shower? Is this, uh, is this her singing a little ditty on the back porch? I, I don't know. We, we, we don't know. But what we do know is that it's a reply. Did you see that in verse 46? And Mary said it's a reply to what had happened in verses 26 through 45. And that's, what, that's why she's singing here. What song really is, it's the language that we use for the parts of life that we can't put into words. That rational speech has its limits, and when those limits are reached, we break out into song. See, Mary just couldn't say, that is true, or thank you. She had to sing at this juncture. But I want you to think about the role of song in your life. 
I think for most of us, the role of song plays a relatively small role in our lives. See, when, when I went to the, the Smithsonian Museum in Manhattan, it's the only time I've ever been. It was about 10 years ago. I had lots of takeaways, but one of the takeaways I had from being in there for several hours was that every culture from every time period had always utilized song as a piece of its culture. You saw all kinds of instruments. You saw these carvings of people dancing. You had these tribes that were dancing around fires. You had songs that were sung at harvest. You had songs that were sung at weddings and when children came into the world. But for us, when do we sing? I don't think it's very often. I do some weddings and some funerals, and usually at weddings and funerals, when we get to the corporate singing, hardly anybody sings. Now, maybe the church folk are singing, but very few other people do. Now, maybe it's because they don't know the words. Maybe it's because they don't agree with the content. But I think there's more going on than just that. I think one of the reasons that song doesn't play a big role in our life is that we almost exclusively view it as entertainment. See, this whole time you might have been thinking, Marsh, you don't know me. I listen to song in the car all the time. I listen to song in my house. I sing in the shower. Now, we might be good at listening to song, but do we really sing? Or do we think that singing is just for the talented musician, that it's just for the professional? I think we think of it as entertainment. I think of it as we think of that's for some, somebody who's good, somebody who's a professional. But friends, that's a totally different relationship to song than human beings has ever had in the history of the world. Previous cultures, like I referred to earlier, they made singing and dancing as normal as talking and walking. Now, that's the cultural reason why song doesn't play a big role in our life. But what's the heart reason? Look at verses 46 and 47. It says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. You see that word magnifies. Now, you could read this text. Well, we're using the English Standard Version, but you could use other versions. And you would see, instead of the word magnifies, you might see the word enlarge or boast or grows. So what she's saying is here is, my soul makes God bigger. You might say, well, is Mary actually making God bigger? Well, not at all. What she's really saying is that God is getting bigger in her. And this is always what happens when Jesus comes to you, your heart gets big and you start to sing. Now, Mary's the first one who's, who's to sing here in Luke's birth narrative. But if you keep reading through the rest of chapter 1 and through chapter 2, you'll find some other people singing. You'll find Zechariah. Zechariah finally gets out of his deafness and his muteness when he sees Jesus with his own two eyeballs. And he sings. The angels, when they come to his birth, they sing. Simeon, in chapter 2, verse 34, he sings. So, of course, Mary sings because Jesus has come to her. And that's real song, friends. That's true song. This is the song that all other songs point to. And it's the reality that Jesus has come near to us. I ran across this quote from Martin Luther this week. And here's what he said about music. I loved it. He said, I have no use for cranks. 
who despise music. Music drives away the devil. It makes people happy. They forget about all wrath, unchastity, and arrogance and the like. After theology, I give music the highest place and the greatest honor. Experience proves that. Next to the Word of God, only music deserves to be extolled as the mistress and governess of the feeling of the human heart. We know that the devil, to him, music is distasteful and insufferable. My heart bubbles up and overflows in response to music, which so often refreshed me and delivered me from dire plagues. So is there a place for singing in your life? Singing to Jesus? Singing because of Jesus? And what we see in Luke chapters 1 and 2 is that there's all different kinds of people who sing because of Jesus. You've got his family members. You've got religious professionals. You've got men. You've got women. And you even have angels who sing because of him. And I think we ought to sing too. What I'm advocating for isn't to go home and listen to only Christian music. What I'm advocating for isn't just humming the songs that we're singing here Sunday in and Sunday out all week long whenever you're walking around. But what I am advocating for is that there ought to be times both in private and in public that you have to sing you have to sing because you've got to express the joy that Jesus is enlarging and magnifying your heart. See, that's what song really is in verses 46 and 47. But Mary goes on, she tells us why she's singing. And she gives us three fours in 48 through 50. Do you see them? Look at verse 48. She says, for he has looked on the humble state of his servant. Go down a little further. It says, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Go a little farther. And it talks about God's character. For he is mighty, holy, and merciful. And every time you see the four, she's giving a reason for why she's singing. So why does Mary sing and why do we sing? Well, we sing because we're humble, because we're blessed. And because we experience the character of God. Let's talk about the humility and the blessings. I want you to go back to Friday. I'm just going to assume that you got paid on Friday. Maybe you wish you got paid on Friday. I wish I got paid on Friday. Um, and if you did, did you sing when you got your paycheck? You probably didn't sing. Because you earned your money. You got money in exchange for the time and the talent you invested in your employer's mission. But what if you opened your mailbox and you found 10 crisp $100 bills in an unmarked envelope? I bet you you would sing. You know why, don't you? It's because you didn't do anything to deserve those 10 crisp $100 bills in an unmarked envelope. And that's the way that Mary viewed being in relationship with God. Her feelings are really clear here. She sees that God owes her nothing and everything that she has is from him. But is that the way that we really feel about being recipients of God's grace? 
See, if you're not humble, you won't see God's gracious activity in your life. You're going to mistake the good things in your life as a result of your own doing. Let me give you a few examples from my life and how I should view them. I'm not saying this is the way I do view them. This is the way I want to view them. What do you think about, for, for me, I, take marriage for an example. Jen and I, uh, we celebrate our 15-year anniversary here in a few months. And if I'm to think back and say, um, is the reason that I've stayed married this long because I've been so good and faithful? That would be looking at it very pridefully, wouldn't it? Humility would say, in a lot of ways, I can't believe she stayed with me this long. I mean, that's being funny about it. But in all reality, I can't believe that I've not screwed this up beyond repair that I've, that in order for me to stay married. And really mean it. Think about my kids. You might say, well, having kids, that's just what happens when you're married. It's normal. You're just being a good American. But what if I view kids as more than the product of a biological act? And I saw them more as gifts from God. And at the same time, I'm painfully aware of my liabilities as a dad. If that's the way I view it, then I will see being a dad in such a way that I'll be able to walk in humility. Think about my job. I got ordained about four years ago, and it'd be easy on the outside just to say, Marsh, so great, you deserve it. You went to seminary. You're the kind of person that a church would want to hire. Uh, you went through all those rigors of your crazy ordination process and your crazy denomination. Congrats. But friends, that's not what really happened. What really happened is that God called a broken man with some major weaknesses to do something that's way too hard for him. So I should walk in humility. Think about our church. Lord willing, we're going to become our own church on March the 24th of 2019, and we're going to throw a huge party. And it's going to be really easy for me in that moment and reflecting back on that moment to say, haven't I done a great job? Friends, that's just not what is true. What's true is that the Lord has brought me into this. The Lord has brought you into our fellowship. And it's a miracle that this thing has worked. That's walking in humility. But pride is just the opposite of humility. I think Tim Keller gives a great definition. I know it's shocking. Here's what he says. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we're competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. Brother and sister, you'll only sing when God blesses you if you're keenly aware of your shortcomings and you're keenly aware of God's willingness to bless you in spite of them. Only humble people sing. Look at the second thing. I mean, blessings are tied up into that, but look at the other one, the, the third four. The third four, Mary lists these three characteristics of God. She mentions his might, then she mentions his holiness, then she mentions his mercy. She's not listing these out as 
textbook kind of answer. She's not listing them out as some abstract expression. What she's doing is that she's singing these attributes, singing these because she's in this concrete relationship with God that's worked in the details of her life. Just look back on the previous two sections of uh, the previous two passages. She saw God's holiness when an angel came to her. That'd make you shake in your boots too. She saw his mercy because the angel tender, tenderly commanded her to not fear. She saw his might when he superly naturally worked around and then through her biology to get her pregnant. These are all details in her life that had real moments in time, real circumstances attached to them. See, God's attributes aren't meant to just be understood. They're to be experienced in these everyday affairs. And if you're churning along with this generic belief that God exists and that Jesus and the Bible are important, you're never going to sing. You're only going to sing when you see God working in the nitty gritty point in time ways in your life. Now, I know up to this point, it's really just been about marrying her relationship with God and you and your relationship with God. But the text goes a lot further. It begins, it's addressed what is song, it's addressed why we sing, but it addresses who we sing with. This isn't just a, this isn't just a Mary and God affair, that this is also a relationship that Mary has with her people and that those people have with God. Who do you sing with? And in verses 51 through 55, you see all the same things, all the same themes expressed in Mary's song about herself, expressed in her people's relationship with God. Look at verse 49. Mary's talking about how she's experienced God's power. Then in verse 51, it talks about God's power in the world. In verse 48, Mary talks about her humble estate. And then she talks about what God does for humble people in general in verses 52 and 53. She speaks of God's mercy in verse 50, and then she speaks of God's mercy to the church in verses 54 and 55. And friends, this is what true gospel singing will do. It won't leave you, it never leaves you in isolation. True gospel singing always pushes you out into community. And I've got this love-hate relationship with the word community. I love it because it ensures I'm not alone. Being in community says that people accept me. Being in community means that we've got a common cause. But I hate the word community for several reasons, too. I hate it because for true community to happen, then I've got to share myself, my whole self, not just the parts I'm proud of. For true community to happen, I've got to risk rejection. For true community to happen means that I've got to be in relationship with people who have different preferences than I do. And when I start talking about the ways I don't like community, it sure does make isolation seem nice, doesn't it? Now, I want you to think about isolation when it comes to music. 30 years ago, uh, something came out, and this something uh, was, it came, out, uh, came out from, walk, from Sony, and it's called a Walkman. Anybody ever seen a Walkman? <laughs> Just a cassette player with uh, uh, something you could uh, put uh, headphones into. It was revolutionary at the time. 
I mean, I remember I was just a little guy when they came out, and I thought, man, all the if, if I was in high school or even maybe even middle school and I were cool, I would definitely have a Walkman. But my parents would only listen to Sandy Patty and Lauren Harris. You can Google those people if you want. But when the Walkman came out, it really became the first time that you could listen to what was effectively the soundtrack of your life, where you starred as yourself. And when you put the headphones of the Walkman on, it removed this social element of music and it made listening to music an individualized activity. When you put your headphones on, even today, even though we don't use Walkmans anymore, we create this parallel universe where we're the conductor of our own soundtrack. Do you see what's bleak about this? What the Walkman shows us is that when we're giving, when we're given the choice to engage in community or retreat into isolation, we will choose isolation even to our own detriment. Let me put it another way. When we're given the choice between a self-created world and a life in relationship to others, we'll choose the self-created world and we'll choose it out of self-preservation, out of fear, out of desire for autonomy and control. But what Mary's song shows us, because she begins to include the people of God in community, starting in verse 51. And what Jesus' birth narrative teaches us with all these different people that are a part of it. It's not just Mary and Jesus and Joseph. is that there is an absolute necessity for Christians and, yes, even human beings to be in community. But many of us, even though you may be at church tonight, you're not in this community. Maybe not this community, but you're not experiencing this community. But what would it look like for you to really do so? What would it look like for you to take off the headphones of your life and be in community What would it look like for you to view your life as less of an individualistic enterprise and more of a communal enterprise? What would it look like for you to to quit glossing over the hard parts of community, the hard parts like sharing your real self, the parts that you're ashamed of even with other people? What would it look like for you to really lay aside your preferences and be in relationship with someone different than you? What would it look like for you to take a little risk and possibly be rejected because you desire not to live an individualistic life, but a life that's in the context of community? There's a blues club. It's on the corner of 2nd and Elm Tree. It's called TD's. Uh, TD, uh, you may not know this. I didn't know this, so I moved to the neighborhood. But uh, TD is a world-famous blues musician. He grew up in the East End, and he plays every single Monday night with his band at his club. He lives on the second floor. His club's on the first floor. And I love going. If you've not been, you need to go. And one of the things that TD does that he's so masterful at isn't just his singing. It's not just his guitar. What he's masterful at is getting people involved. Sometimes during songs, he'll say, hey, if you brought your instrument, come on up and join us. 
He'll ask people, give us some song suggestions, and they'll give song suggestions. But my favorite thing that he does is he asks people to join him and come sing. And he says, do we have any singers in the crowd tonight? I love when he asks that question. I've never gone up there. (laughs) And I think during this Christmas season, Jesus is looking for singers. Would he find one with you? Friends, he came so that we would sing. So would you join the chorus of this humble king? Would you sing with an enlarged heart? If you did, your heart would be enlarged. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you came uh, not for this, just this transactional kind of thing to get us out of hell and into heaven. But Lord, you came to fill our hearts with joy. Uh, Would you do so even now? In Christ's name, amen.